0: Well, this morning we are continuing our study through Second Samuel. This morning we're back in chapter fifteen, and we're going to finish up the second half. And, and I just want to mention briefly: next weekend we'll be uh, having our third installment, and you can ask in the you can ask that series. So we'll be answering three more questions next Sunday morning, taping, taking a, a sidestep away from Second Samuel for just that Sunday. But today, if you're following along with the outline or taking notes, our message is titled, A Divided Kingdom, A Broken King. Last week, we focused on how David's failures as a king, and more importantly, as a father, had contributed to the creating of, of the monster that is Absalom. Absalom. David was guilty of neglect on multiple fronts and his son had had enough, infuriated over his father's inaction following his half-brother's assault on his sister Tamar, he murdered him and then fled to the north to live with his grandfather in Geshur. And after three years, Joab, King David's commander of Israel's armies, he finally convinced David to allow Absalom to return, but that he had to uh, or could only come back under the condition that he live under house arrest, away from the palace. David didn't want to see him. So after two years of this treatment, though, Absalom demanded to see the king and be restored, and he was, but he then immediately set about a political campaign uh, whereby he was promoting himself as more available, more compassionate, and wiser than his seemingly absent father, the king of Israel. Absalom, he positioned himself to be present at the city gate. And, and he would draw to himself those who had different legal matters and, and problems. And he would assure them, as he empathized with them, that were he to be in a position of authority, he would help them. And so in doing, we read in verse 6 of Samuel fifteen, Second Samuel, that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And as more time passed, this rebellious son of the king put in motion his plan to overthrow his father. Having hosted a great feast, a gathering in Hebron under the guise of its being a worship service, Absalom initiated a coup. And in verse 10 we read, Then Absalom sent spies simultaneously throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the, the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, that would be the signal. When the trumpet was blown, they would all shout and spread the news that Absalom reigns in Hebron, that he'd been coronated king there, which was where David had begun his rule as well. It was also Absalom's birthplace. He would have had a lot of support there. Well, verse 12, we read, and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. And now Absalom is making a decided and well-supported march on Jerusalem to take the throne, his followers celebrating him as the new king. Well, David has to decide what to do. How is he going to respond to this movement under the leadership of his son. And that's really what the whole uh, of of this chapter is about and and answers. Watching David respond to this assault on his authority and position as king. And what we find is that David chooses to trust in God. He, He does the incredibly difficult thing of yielding to these painful circumstances, which can be misunderstood as weakness or passivity. But I think that as we make our way through these verses, we'll find that it's neither. See, the prophet Samuel, way back in the beginning of 1 Samuel, had told King Saul that that for his sin of disobedience and rebellion, that he would be replaced that God would find a man after his own heart, David was that man, not not a perfect man, we know that from the last the last month don 't we, but a man who would humble himself when when corrected, a man who was willing to repent, who wanted to, a man who understood that the throne it wasn 't his to hold on to, that the kingdom in fact belonged to God, the crown. Was, was his, was God's, to give or to take away. That was why, though called to be king, David chose exile rather than fight against Saul. He trusted God's power and ability to establish him as king whenever and however he so chose. So that's why now, rather than stand and fight, King David will lay aside the crown, and leave Jerusalem quietly. But this making of David, this process of building him into that man after God's own heart, a man who could trust God in this way and willingly walk away from what many would fight to preserve in in the power of the flesh, it didn't happen overnight. This character, this heart in David he had to learn brokenness, to trust God in profoundly painful and difficult places. And we've, we've watched God chart that course in David's life. We've watched that ark be, be built in him over time. Like the apostle Paul, David had, had come to understand what it meant that God's power would be made perfect in his Weakness that his grace was sufficient. He he would find that a man or or a woman who experienced and endured pain, but also trusted God in that place to bring about good and wholeness through it, would though broken be stronger for it. They would learn God's faithfulness and powers and power in ways that were impossible to to know otherwise. So today we're gonna follow. Or watch, David, rather, follow the Lord deeper into that lesson. As the kingdom is divided, David the king will be further broken. And he'll find that again like Paul, he too would be persuaded that God is able to keep what he had committed to him until that day. That the Lord would be faithful to complete the work that he had begun. Let's pray and we'll we'll look at this morning's verses. Father, we ask that this morning... As we look at a word that it challenges our flesh, our self-will. God, our tendency to want to defend ourselves and fight for what's ours. And, And Lord, that could be a confusing idea to understand when it's right, when it's wrong. Lord, help us to hear your heart for us. To see where those places are in our lives right now. Where you want us to choose trusting in you and surrender over leaning on our own understanding. We ask that you would speak to us, God, by your spirit. And we're praying, Lord, that you'd bless our children that are gathered on the other side of the building. Lord, whether they belong to us or not, Lord, they're a part of this church body. We pray that you'd bless those serving them and leading their classes. Father, that they would hear from you as well. But that right now here in this place, Jesus, you'd be walking in our midst, touching lives. God, by your Holy Spirit, you would be showing us what it is that you have for us today and that you would give us a desire to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll start by looking at verses 13 through 17 where we find that David's reaction to the throne, slipping away from him, is to surrender. Verse 13, Now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, "Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword." And the king's servants said to the king, "We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands." then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. The tide had turned against the king, against David. And he knows it. A messenger brought him word of that. That the hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom. And so David, knowing his son with or without cause, had already killed his own brother... Believed he likely would not hesitate to murder his, his own father or members of his household. And so he flees. David, probably seeking to spare Jerusalem bloodshed, chose to simply remove himself and his household. Rather than invite open war into the capital, uh, unlike Absalom, he cared more for the people of Israel than, than he, himself or his own position. So he left quietly. But something that had to be deeply encouraging to David as well, as a confirmation of God's hand on his life, were the many who stood by him in this dark time. Verse 15, and the king's servants said to him, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. I imagine it broke David's heart to have to lead these men and women out of the city from a posture of of defeat. But at the same time, he, he would be blessed in strength and knowing that they were with him. Choosing retreat rather than abandoning him for his opponent. And he left these 10 concubines to keep the house, as verse 16 tells us. And I'm not exactly sure uh, what that's about, but I'm sure they appreciated being left behind. Thanks, David. Apparently, we're expendable. I guess they had to stay and water the plants or something. I don't know. But they got ditched pretty early on. Anyhow... I want to hear again, share from that dramatic retelling of this season of David's life from Gene Edwards, A Tale of Three Kings. If you've never read it, it's a, a great short read, a devotional application of First um, and Second Samuel. But he writes of this, David stood looking over the balcony of the garden terrace of his palace. The lights from the houses in the holy city twinkled below him. From behind, a man approached. "'Do you know?' "'I know,' he replied quietly. "'How long have you known?' said Joab with anxious surprise. "'For months, years, perhaps a decade. "'Perhaps I have known for 30 years.' Joab was not sure after this answer if they were speaking of the same subject. Absalom, after all, was not much past 30. "'Sir, I speak of Absalom,' he said a little hesitantly. "'As do I,' said the king.' If you have known so long, why did you not stop him? I was just asking myself that same question. Shall I stop him for you? David whirled around. In one instant, Joab's query had resolved his dilemma. You shall not, nor shall you speak one word to him, nor shall you criticize him, nor shall you allow anyone else to speak critically of him or what he is doing. Certainly you shall not stop him. But will he not then take the kingdom? David sighed again, softly, slowly. For a moment, he balanced between tears and a smile. Then he smiled lightly and said, Yes, perhaps he will. What will you do? Do you have plans? No, none. Quite frankly, I have no idea what to do. I have fought many battles and faced many sieges. I I have usually known what to do. But on this occasion, I have only the experience of my youth to draw on. The course I followed at that time seems to me to be the best I can follow now. And what course was that, Joab asked, to which David replied, to do absolutely nothing. David had learned this course of action or inaction many years before, and God had blessed it with his favor and protection. Back when David served in the, in the palace ministering to Saul, the then king would have fits of jealous rage in which he tried to kill the, the shepherd, giant, slayer, musician. Do you remember that? First Samuel 18, verse 11, And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Imagine you're there to serve the king and he's trying to kill you. Maybe some of you have lived through something similar. Maybe not actual murder, but being singled out in that kind of paranoid way. David wasn't weak. He wasn't a pacifist. And this wasn't fear. He trusted God. And he knew at that time that he alone had placed Saul on the throne David respected that and God's power and sovereignty. And so rather than attack his enemies, he learned to duck. He learned to dodge the spears and to trust men like Saul into God's hands. I wonder if we've learned that lesson yet ourselves. This was also part of God's training David to be a broken man, a man after his heart. This brings us to verses 18 through 23, where we learn that David in this dark hour is helped by his supporters, some of which we've already seen, and more that are going to come up later in the chapter. Verse 18, then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelathites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. This is interesting because this very large company of supporters were not even Israelites. It's another glimpse in the Old Testament into God's inclusion of all peoples into his plan and purposes and even his kingdom. Where well, you see it really from the beginning. Um, sometimes you have to look a, a, a little bit more deeply to recognize it, but, but these were the Gittites at least had come from Gath during David's time of sojourn and exile there in the Philistine territory. They were Philistines and the Pelethites and the Cherethites. Scholars are divided over where they come from exactly, but they're possibly related to the Philistines. Needless to say, they weren't Jews, but they were loyal to David and to his God. Verse 19, then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, he's the leader of these men. Why are you also going with us? Remain, return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. David's he's, he's saying to them, look, I, this isn't even your home. I, I don't want to lead you into more troubles and problems. We already lived that life so many years ago. This is probably a time just for you to return to your own people. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I, I go, I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. This Ittai, the, the Hittite from Gath, we, we don't know a lot about him. And David actually says, you only came here yesterday. We're not sure if, if he was speaking in a generic sense, like this isn't your home, or if he you know traveled back to Get, uh, um, back to uh, Gath, and then just come back. We don't know exactly, but the bottom line was David's telling him, "Look, Ittai, you've served me faithfully, but I don't know what lies ahead, and I don't want to drag you into this. Please go go home." It's interesting because just yesterday I was reading in the Jerusalem Post, and uh, about these uh, cowboys from the United States that are that are serving in Israel on the farms. In the South. They're from our own southern states as well as Montana. They're evangelical Christians, the article talked about. And there, they're working to help support the farmers to keep uh, the harvest moving forward. They're providing security and, and other aid to the Israelis there. And they've actually raised millions of dollars to help secure the area. But the article noted that their ministry of these American Christians. American Christian Cowboys, America, in Israel, it was Operation Ittai. And the article cited Second Samuel chapter 15 in referencing this, this uh, Gentile that served under King David and loved him and loved his God. It's interesting that that kind of thing is still going on and, and being recognized in Israel today. But needless to say... This was Ittai's position under David, but he felt badly, the king did, that these expatriates should again wander with him in the wilderness, who knows where for who knows how long. Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king and said, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. What What a blessing and encouragement to David's heart. David said, as the Lord lives, David, I love you and I love your God. He's now my God. Your people are my people. Doesn't that remind us of Ruth's attitude and heart towards Naomi, another Gentile who was brought into the kingdom and the people of God? Naomi, uh, after both she and her daughters had become widows, in verse 16, uh, she'd already told her, Ruth, you need to go back to your own people. They were Moabites. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts you and me. That's the same heartbeat of Ittai and these others that are alongside of David. The support that the Lord had raised up for this king in this, what had to be just such a dark and lonely place. David had been in so many difficult places in his life before. And now faced with his own failure in recent history that was continuing to compound. He's having to walk away feeling defeated. But but he's encouraged by these who really were willing to risk everything to support him. These Gentiles' faith in, in choosing the people of God and the God of Israel over their own people and, and culture and idols, it speaks to us today. Have we made that choice? I wonder. Because God calls us in the same radical way out of our own place and people to identify with his kingdom and people. Our lives, they're not to look like they used to, are they? we're called to live separately. We're called to step away from where we were to where he is and where he's calling us. Jesus, he said that to the disciples and he still says it to men and women today. Follow me. Your direction, your manner of life, it should no longer be wherever it was previously. Jesus said to those, those fishermen, he said, I will make you fishers of men. You're fishermen, but I'm going to make you those whose lives are lived for others. Those who preach the gospel and, and, and draw men and women into the kingdom of God. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For, for what, what profit is it to a man, to a woman, if they gain the whole world, loses his own soul? I think there was something of that wrestling that these had to go through in their decision to follow David. In some ways, maybe it it pictures Christ calling on our own lives today. Verse 22. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all the men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. They went with their families, with their children And all the country wept with a loud voice. I know you all, most of you women have been studying the book of Exodus. Not not a hoof will be left behind. They followed their king. They followed their God. And they said, our kids are going with us. And that's how we follow the Lord. No one left behind. We're all in. And all the people crossed over. That's why I prayed for the kids earlier. They're, they're, They're not there just being kept busy. So they're not under our feet while we're studying the word. They are the church and, and they are the future. And just recently, I was thinking again about how sometimes we, we mistake in our minds. Oh, I wouldn't want to bring children into the world today. God help us if that's our attitude. We need to bring children into the world and we need to train them up in the way that they should go. Who's going to tell this generation about the Lord if not our children? Who, who's going to share Christ with the next generation? You're like, I'm 70 years old, Pastor Aaron. All right, you can pray for the kids, all right? You can pray for Miss Brenda. Help do sign-ups, okay? Serve in the kids' ministry. Anyway, we'll move on. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. So David accepts Ittai's fealty, his commitment, inviting he and his men to cross before them over the brick Brook Kidron, which is down at the bottom of the valley as they came down off of the the hill that Jerusalem's built on there, Zion, and made their way up the Mount of Olives, that little hill there, even as the city understood that David was leaving and they they all began to weep. Just, Just briefly here, a word on faithfulness, friendship, and commitment that we see in Ittide and these hundreds of others, David's household and those who went with him, they were incredibly loyal to their king and friend, David. And it reminds us of the very love that, that was modeled by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The same self-sacrificing commitment that we're called to, we read in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Proverbs seventeen seventeen, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. This weekend, we're remembering our, our nation's veterans, men and women who've willingly served our nation and we honor that sacrifice but do we recognize that that God calls us to live in that same way for others for his kingdom not fair weather followers or friends but willing to sacrifice to endure difficulty out of love and friendship are we willing to sacrifice Our agenda and comforts to help another, to encourage, to reach out to somebody, to just to pick up the phone and give a call maybe to a brother or sister you haven't seen for a while or or for whom the Lord's placed them on your heart, to send them a text, to write a note, to just stop by. To serve, I mentioned the kids' ministry, start praying now because in January, we're going to take a few weeks and talk about the needs that are present in the children's ministry to serve there, to disciple, to lead. We need more people alongside of of Brenda in the children's ministry. That's coming in January. We're also going to be talking about life groups here in the church, those that maybe would open their home as, as hosts People that would want to serve as as facilitators. That there are opportunities coming up. And I want you to be praying now. Lord, how do you want me to shift out of this seat that's so doggone comfortable. And step out and say yes to you. And do something that maybe isn't so comfortable. To reach the lost. To to go. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field. Or to a a short-term mission trip. Or to support. To give. To give toward our missionaries. We have them displayed on the wall in the fellowship hall. Now, although David is blessed in this hour with friends, and more are coming, what this season is really about is seeing. And that is seeing God's plan. Verse 24, there was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. So along with the others who are loyal to David, now come the priests. And they're believing David to be the true king of Israel. And they wanted to be with him. And they felt the Ark of the Covenant should be there as well. That they might minister before the Lord on Israel and on David's behalf. But David knew better. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we we saw this error. Do you remember? Israel dragging the ark along into battle when God had not instructed them to. The elders of Israel, seeing that they were facing defeat at the hands of the Philistines, they sent word to Eli, the high priest, that the ark should be sent. And so his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they they brought it up onto the battlefield, after which Israel suffered massive casualties along with the death of Eli's sons Israel lost the battle and the ark but the problem was that they were treating the ark like a good luck charm, an idol they they weren't seeking God or humbling themselves before him they'd reduced the ark to a religious object and, and they'd put in the place where there should have been repentance and seeking of God, they'd placed religion there They were hoping that it would get them out of a a tight jam. And for this, God disciplined them harshly. David would not repeat that same error. He was under God's discipline, which he knew was at least in part the case. He, He would trust in God's mercies and not try to manipulate circumstances or selfishly endanger the ark. David saw the priest bringing the ark and he said, That does not belong to me. That's not a part of my luggage. That's, that's God's faithfulness and the representation of his presence among his people. You guys take that back. David knew that if God didn't want him to be king, possessing the ark wouldn't change that. But whether he had the ark or not, if God chose to restore him to the throne, Nothing could stop him. Verse 25, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. David was resigned to and trusted in the will of God. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. Ahimahaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. These priests and their sons would act as informants, of which... He'll be recruiting, David will, more as we'll see in a moment. But I want to stop here a moment and read another section again from A Tale of Three Kings as we consider the turmoil that David endured, but also the clarity of his resolve to trust God in this most painful hour. I just think Edward's writings help to illustrate for us these moments. David and Zadok, the high priest, were alone once more. And now what will you do, David? In your youth, you spoke no word against an unworthy king. What shall you do now with an equally unworthy youth? As I said, replied David, these are the times I hate the most, Zadok. Nonetheless, against all reason, I judge my own heart first and rule against its interests. I shall do what I did under Saul. I shall leave the destiny of the kingdom in God's hands alone. It may be that he has finished with me. Perhaps I have sinned too greatly and am no longer worthy to lead. Only God knows if that is true, and it seems he will not tell. Then, clenching his fist, yet with a a touch of wry humor in his voice, he added emphatically but today I shall give circumstances ample space for this untelling God of ours to be found out. I know of no other way to bring about such an extraordinary event except by doing nothing. The throne is not mine, not to have, not to take, not to protect, and not to keep. I shall leave the city. The throne is the Lord's, so is the kingdom. I will not hinder God. No obstacle, no activity on my part lies in the space between God and his will. He has no hindrance to prevent him from his will. If I am not to be king, our God will find no difficulties in making Absalom to be Israel's king. Now it is possible. God shall be God. The author continues, The true king turned and walked quietly out of the throne room, out of the palace, out of the city, he walked and he walked into the bosoms of all men whose hearts are pure. I wonder how we do, have done, are doing in our own lives when our kingdoms are threatened. Because too often our response is to defend and to cling to what we perceive to be ours. And to fight to reestablish our kingdom not realizing that, that we are actually setting up a throne in contrast and in contradiction against the Lord's and our own lives and in his kingdom. I wonder if we're able to see and trust God's plan as David was. If we're trusting him in that way, or if we're given to controlling, manipulating, and fighting to constantly assert our way or what we believe to be best, be careful, believer. That's a sure way to make for certain that the outcome in your life will always be a work of the flesh. Now, as we look at the final section of verses this morning, we come to verses 30 through 37, where we learn that David will have spies. Verse 30, so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. And so having crossed the brook Kidron down in the valley below the city, they're, they're making their way up this hill, the Mount of Olives, opposite Jerusalem. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, as we pointed out last week, David had committed adultery with this man's Granddaughter Bathsheba, Ahithophel had, and then murdered her husband. The king had to know that this advisor did not hold him in the highest regard. So this defection would not have been a surprise, I wouldn't imagine. But it still was costly. In 2 Samuel 16 and verse 23, we'll read, The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired of the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. The guy had a lot of wisdom and insight. And David knew he would be a help to Absalom. Losing this counselor and advisor, it was a painful loss and dangerous. It would give David's son, rebellious son, an advantage. But David has prayed that his, his counselor's insights would be confused and made into foolishness. For David's own benefit. And no sooner has he prayed than the answer arrives. It's always nice when that happens, isn't it? Sometimes you pray and it's like a long time before the answer comes. It's, it's always kind of encouraging when it's like, Lord, would you just provide? And boom, the phone rings or mailman shows up. This was one of those moments. Verse 32. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God. There was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, then you will become a burden to me. Hushai shows up. He's already got all these people with him. I, I don't know why Hushai would be a burden, except I would, I'm guessing maybe the reason he's the last, and David says he would be a burden, is maybe he's a little bit older. Maybe he's a lot older. And, and David, like, Hushai. <laughs> Sees him coming up with his cane or whatever, and he's like, Hushai, I love you, but you're going to slow us down, and we got to kind of keep this thing moving here. But David has an idea not trying to be rude to Hushai, he's saying, look, we, we have to get rolling forward, and, and we, we can't afford to have you with us, but wait a minute, verse 31, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I now also will be your servant, then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? David's already just told them to return with their sons. Maybe they were still here present. With Hushai who's now come huffing and puffing up to the top of the hill. <laughs> and David says, "Wait a minute, they're right there. Let's let's put this all together." Therefore, it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimahaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them, you shall send me everything you hear. So, Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So, David establishes this reconnaissance network. It's like, Hushai, wait a minute. I'm going to need you. You're older. You've got a lot of wisdom. I want you to go and volunteer your services to Absalom. Pledge your loyalty to him. And then you can share what you learn with the priest's sons. And they'll they'll meet me out in the plain, out in the wilderness. And so I'll understand what's happening and have an advantage. Verse 30, so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives And wept as he went up. We read moments ago. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were there with him covered their heads and went up. Weeping as they went. We could spend a lot of time talking about David's choice to worship the Lord in this moment. David was broken. Deeply pained over this great tragedy of his son's overthrowing of the kingdom. Having to abandon the capital knowing that Absalom was an evil man and none of this bode well for the people of God. They would likely suffer under his foolish leadership and so the king, he wept openly, knowing he he at least partly bore responsibility for what was happening for these circumstances. Regret, sadness, and maybe some fear filled his heart. It's easy to read these verses and wonder if David made a mistake. Maybe it would have been better if he had asserted himself. But David had learned painful lessons that taught him otherwise. His tears bore witness to the brokenness that God had wrought in his life. Which was manifest in in a raw trust God's promises. David's strength was his faith in God and the reality is that this seemingly weak king would be defended by God and would one day soon again sit on the throne of Israel ruling, not because he'd fought to preserve his reign but because his God had I've shared this once before, but Pastor and Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe he writes in one of his books of how Will Rogers, who was known for his his laughter, he was a famous comedian, actor, and performer. He was born in the 1800s. We're going way back here. Often quoted, and and even still to the present day, many of his little little quips are still known. But he also knew how to weep. One day he was entertaining, he was performing at the Milton H. Berry Institute in Los Angeles a hospital that specialized in rehabilitating polio victims those with broken backs and other extreme physical handicaps as a celebrity he was coming in and volunteering his time and just looking to cheer them up of course rogers had everybody laughing he writes and even patients in really bad conditions but then he, he suddenly left the platform and went to the restroom Milton Berry, the the founder and director of the facility, followed him to give him a towel, and when he opened the door, he saw Will Rogers leaning against the wall, sobbing like a child. He closed the door, and in a few minutes, Rogers appeared back on the platform as, as jovial as before, so moved by the suffering of those that were before him. Wearsby writes of this, If you want to learn what a person is really like, ask these three questions. What makes them laugh? What makes them angry? And what makes them weep? He writes, these are fairly good tests of character that are especially appropriate for Christians. And goes on to say, I hear people saying we need angry leaders today. Or the time has come to practice militant Christianity. Perhaps, but James 1.20 says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What we need today is not anger, but anguish. The kind of anguish that Moses displayed when he broke the two tablets of the law and then climbed the mountain to intercede for the people. Or that Jesus displayed when he cleansed the temple and then wept over the city. The difference between anger and anguish is a broken heart. It's easy to get angry, especially at someone else's sins. But it's not easy to look at sin, our own included, and weep over it. Powerful words from Warren Weersby. I know it's very tempting today to become angry. But I I wonder if sometimes we should check that anger until and unless it's preceded or followed by tears. David wept over a terrible situation. He understood that, that he'd helped to create. He wept over a son who was grieving God and for the nation that might have to suffer more than they already had. The kingdom was divided and the king was broken. But it was because of that brokenness that God would restore David and make him king once more. That was the irony, as we'll see in 2 Samuel, not far from now. He could trust David to listen and obey to humble himself and repent. David was willing to learn to grow. Are we, are you and I still today broken in that way? Willing and ready to learn like we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or if we weren't learning then, are we open to it this morning? Peter exhorts the reader in his second letter to be on guard against a a stagnancy, an unwillingness to keep learning that'll leave the Christian fruitless and reliant on their own strength, a stubbornness that that can be shrouded in religiosity and anger. Anger. 2 Peter 3 verse 17, you therefore beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To grow is to change, to abandon the old and embrace the new that God is doing today today. Don't be afraid to weep, to break, to humble yourself before God and others, that you might be remade in the image of his son, that you might be more like that greater king of Israel, Jesus Christ. Would that that would be each of our hearts and prayers this morning. Would you stand with me as we close our time here? Father, this morning as we quiet ourselves before you, Lord, we we want to hold our hearts before you, Lord, and pray that you would give us that, that yieldedness to your hand and your way that we've prayed for several times this morning and spoken to in this morning's message. God, would you teach us? Would you grow us? Would you move us? Would you change us? Give us the eyes to see what we can't see on our own, Lord. Sometimes we're, we're blind, and we don't even realize it, like those that Jesus spoke to in the Gospels. We need to be healed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you for the brokenness that you want to bring about. Help us to surrender even now, Lord, to hold everything you've given us, gifted us with, the things you've seemingly called us to, help us to hold it with an open hand, Lord, and to be able to say, not my will, but yours be done. To humble ourselves, to take the the broken path, Lord, recognizing that you're able to resurrect God, you're calling in our lives if that's your will. And if it isn't, we don't want to be there anyway. God, we want to be where you want us to be. We want to be a people surrendered to you and trusting you and your word above all else. God, that we wouldn't trust in our own understanding or lean on it, but that we would acknowledge you. God, that we would be a people led by your spirit, most concerned about following you and your son, Jesus Christ. Would you meet us here as we worship and surrender to you? In Jesus' name, amen.